You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. We've got a slight shift of emphasis, but I think the subject, the topic of this panel very definitely follows on from what we were talking about this morning. Um, and we'll be considering to some extent how policy and practice has changed, um, the influences on those change, and looking, looking forward as to what, what what, how is research going to start influencing positive change. Um, so I hope we can end on a slightly more upbeat note than maybe we got to at some points in the morning discussion. Um, my, my notes here say that I, I should give a, a personal view on how I think policy and practice has changed in disasters over the last 40 years. I can't really do that. 40 years ago, the only disasters I was... I was at university. The only disaster I was interested in was the English Civil War in the mid-17th century. Um, <laughs> but I, I'll make one personal observation, which is I wandered into this field, disaster risk reduction principally, 25 years ago, more or less, um, when it was very definitely a fringe activity. And to see over that period of time the massive growth, not just in the number of people and organisations involved, but in the way of thinking about it and applying it, um, has been actually revelatory. Um, and maybe it's that 25-year-plus that, that span that we should be thinking about as meaningful in terms of change. I've got three panellists on the stage. Um, Dr Yasmin Aysan is an architect by background, experience in disaster risk management and post-disaster recovery. She worked at Oxford Brookes University, where she was director of the Disaster Management Centre. She's held advisory and management positions at the UNDP Bureau for Crisis Prevention and Recovery, worked at the IFRC as a senior policy advisor, as head of disaster preparedness and policy, and more recently as the Undersecretary General for Disaster Response and Recovery. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Leaning is the director of the François-Xavier Bagneau, is that pronounced right? Centre for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University and professor of the practice of health and human rights at Harvard School of Public Health. She's also a faculty member of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Her research interests focus on issues of public health and international law in response to war and disaster, early warning for mass atrocities and problems of human security in the context of forced migration and conflict. And Dr. Hugo Slim is Head of Policy at the ICRC in Geneva. Before that, he was Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict at Oxford University, where he led research on humanitarian ethics and the protection of civilians. He's combined a career between academia and practice. He was Chief Scholar at the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue from 2003 to 7, and Reader in International Humanitarianism, again at Oxford Brookes University from 1994 to 2003. So we have a very experienced panel with a, a wide range of interests. It's a pretty similar formula to, to what we had before. I will ask each panellist one specific question. Um, There'll be a chance for some follow-up questioning based on issues around that. Then we will throw it open to the floor and the much bigger floor that's online, which will be attempting to catch my attention through this, this iPad here. Um, so, Yasmin, can we start with you, please? Yes, and the question we, we asked Yasmin to, to deal with was, over the past 40 years, we've seen huge changes in policy and practice in the DRR field whether it's in the evolution of DRR language or the discipline itself is being taken more seriously. Um, so in your opinion, Yasmin, how has the policy and practice landscape evolved over time? 
Thank you, John. I'm very pleased to be here. First of all, to see a lot of people I knew from the early days of um, Disasters Journal and uh, what uh, Francis described, because I came to the UK in the 80s, early 80s, actually, November 79, on a British Council grant for one year, and I ended up at Oxford Polytechnic, which is now Oxford Brookes, where I met Ian Davis, uh, Paul Oliver, who passed away recently, who was also a social, um, a, a kind of an anthropologist, I would say. And I had the opportunity to work with Francis, uh, Ian, and various other people in the field, uh, doing field work for several years as a job. And uh, I was coming from a country which was very vulnerable to disasters. We had lots of earthquake in, uh, earthquakes in the 70s. But I had never heard of the word risk or vulnerability when I was in Turkey, because it was very much the domain of the scientists and mostly the um, engineers, uh, seismologists. Um, there was no involvement of social scientists, not even planners. Architects certainly didn't care. And after so many years, it hasn't changed fundamentally. Where I live in Turkey, a small town, we had an earthquake uh, last month. And of course, it's immediately in the press and who they invite to speak. And it was a lot about looking at hazards, the future hazard risk. Uh, and again, the uh, seismologists, the engineers, um, geologists, etc., but that's about it. So on the one hand, there, was, there is a lot of change, and certainly the vocabulary of risk reduction is very much in the reality of Turkey now. Uh, but when you look at from the vocabulary, even the policies have changed in Turkey to incorporate disaster risk reduction institutionally because of a lot of major earthquakes since. But when you look at where the practice is, and who is really engaged and involved in research, in practice, the change is not fundamental. And I'd like to say this doesn't apply to all parts of the world, but applies to a lot of countries, and particularly to countries like Turkey, which is kind of medium developed, but a very centralized country when it comes to policy. And there is very limited NGO work to influence policy, to make policy advocacy because of the political context. It's almost, I don't want to use the word dangerous, but it's not much welcome to highlight where risks are coming from or demanding policy change and making advocacy uh, to bring about changes to reduce uh, vulnerabilities and risk. Now, coming back to England, I think this was a big surprise to me, I would say. And uh, it became a career eventually. I was probably very lucky from the start to find myself surrounded by people who were already interested, as Francis described, the social, economic, political aspects and challenging the mainstream relief mentality. But when I look at the policy change overall, I think in the 70s, it was still very much relief-oriented. When UNDRO was established, based on some major earthquakes in Iran, etc., they had the vocabulary of prevention and mitigation, as Ian said. And it was largely dominated by science and uh, scientific work, again, 
seismologists, engineers, etc., scientific committees, whatnot, but they were also engaged in relief. I think one of the major shifts in the last 40 years is this shift from purely relief focus to something a, a lot more uh, into the social and cultural, political, environmental aspects, looking at not just the hazard part and not addressing the uh, event, but looking into um, vulnerabilities and how they are constructed. And originally, even in UNDRO and later, it was more looking at the physical and structural vulnerability. Um, again, engineers, etc., at best planners, perhaps. But looking into the other social, economic, etc. aspects came a lot later, and probably a lot of it, yes, there was a lot of individual research, there were individual groups in the USA, social scientists, as Francis described in the UK. There was a, a huge influence, in my opinion, of the famine work in England, and also the influence of um, practices like PRA, participatory rural appraisal, rapid rural appraisal, those groups were already looking at community level, their um, vulnerabilities, etc. Maybe the language was different, but this was coming from the development side. <coughs> and there was a lot of research, a lot of frameworks, tools, etc., which we later adopted a lot. And I can give examples later on. Now, I think in the course of time, I think from relief more into DRR and trying to make a bridge into development was the objective. Now, how far putting DRR into development worked and how much the, the vocabulary was called mainstreaming uh, DRR into development. I was working at, I'm reflecting from my experience of IFRC and UNDP, when I went to UNDP in 2000, the whole thing was how can we integrate the DRR more into development? How can we influence to begin with UNDP institution, but where UNDP work, trying to mainstream it into the line ministries, for example? Lots of projects, but has it happened, in my opinion, in a very limited way? So the vocabulary evolved. The frameworks evolved, policy at the global level evolved, but the critical thing is how much of it really um, changed the practice. Now, through the I ISDR, IDNDR, HIOGO, etc., a lot of things added to this framework. I think initially ISDR was very much, again, scientific-oriented. It was a scientific committee, etc. It was, um, I think, in 2005, it kind of incorporated the agenda of um, more the social uh, political aspects. And then gradually the current resilience issue was also the subheading of Yokohama, if I'm correct. It was to build the resilience of governments and communities. Now we're coming back to the same uh, vocabulary in a way. So I think gradually from a sort of core, more scientific group and relief orientation on the other hand, it moved in that direction. And also, I think the, the vocabulary and the conceptual framework became wider, incorporating resilience, uh, capacity building, for example, which came with Mary Anderson's work, 
uh, as a framework used by NGOs extensively, including the uh, Federation, um, which is probably in some ways similar to the current resilience agenda, parts of the current resilience framework and capacity as to look at the other side of the coin of vulnerability was already named a couple of times at international policy level. And then gradually, I think it was partnerships involving the private sector, everybody working together, etc. Now, governments subscribe to this, of course, to the international agenda because they're member states of the UN and in fact, they determine policy. And yet, when you look at the implementation of it, probably it hasn't gone that far. Not the, the, the sophistication and the complexity of the language, of the frameworks, and of the numerous tools that have been developed over the last 40 years. And when you look at how much is practiced from those, uh, there is a bit of a gap. And I'd like to say, it's not to say that the governments are not aware. I think it's now in the vocabulary of everyone. I recently evaluated a project for USAID in um, Nepal, and it was with the army, the police, etc., looking at search and rescue training, emergency response training. And when I look at their training material, one of the first chapters are the whole disaster reduction framework. Now, of course, when we evaluated, they said that was the most theoretical part. And not so useful to their work. But I think nowadays even the emergency response teams are somehow exposed to the framework of DRR and certainly aware of the vocabulary, governments. You don't have to explain what DRR and what you're trying to discuss, etc. I think it's second nature. And certainly in the NGO community, I think everybody uses the language and the frameworks. When it comes to implementation, I'm going to refer to two examples. One is, um, for the last um, uh, Hyogo Framework of Action Monitoring, which is a tool for governments reporting back what they are implementing from the components of disaster risk reduction that they subscribe to in Hyogo. Uh, Alain Lavelle and I were asked to write a piece on governance. Governance is one of the aspects. And when we look at, looked at what gov governments were reporting as implementation, the most reported part was preparedness and response, early warning and preparedness. And I must say, of all the sophistication of the vocabulary, the understanding, the analysis, etc., much of which has filtered into the language and understanding of the people in the field, but when it comes to implementation, the change is not as fundamental. Of course, it's a great progress, early warning, awareness raising, etc., which saves lives. But the kind of aspects of disaster reduction we're talking about, the social drivers, the economic drivers, the environmental drivers, it's still limited. Governance was very limited. There was some progress on the legislations and laws, uh, so DRR filtered into the legislations and laws, but when you look at their implementation, again, very limited. So there is some filtering in, but uh, not fundamental change in practice. And my last example will be from the IFRC. When I went to IFRC in 1993 from Oxford, I found myself in a fundamentally response 
organization. So the support of the richer Red Crosses and Crescents to the, the ones where there were disasters was to create search and rescue teams, warehousing, stockpiling, and response teams. And there wasn't even much effort put into preparedness planning for the institution. I was working under Peter Walker, who also contributed a lot, and the one who established the disaster, um, Federation's Journal. Um, and um, he, I was the very first disaster preparedness advisor in the Federation in 93. And when I started, of course, I was very familiar with the DRR language from my academic work for 14 years in England. But I could not introduce the word DRR because people would disengage in the institution. You know, I, so I used the word community-based disaster preparedness. And within that, we addressed a lot of the DRR issues because that could be an entry point and people would relate to it as a vocabulary. But suddenly to jump the organization from relief and warehousing and search and rescue teams to something fundamentally different, although of course, they worked at the community level doing health messaging, first aid, etc. Still, it was a big leap. And um, we were, I had five delegates in five regions called disaster preparedness delegates. I had to find the funding. Institution couldn't put funding. Richer societies were not interested. And we had to battle what we called the group. Still, the Federation was dispatching people from the headquarters to the field the disasters. Emergency response was still managed from Geneva. And uh, they called us thinkers, and we called them relief cowboys. And there was a big, <laughs> big battle between the two groups. But by the time I left the Federation first time in 93, we had vulnerability capacity assessment tool. We established community-based disaster preparedness. When I go to the field now, I see the Red Crosses. I see at the community level work, communities, the institutions, volunteers, everybody knows the DRR language. But my last point is still when I look at what they are implementing, it's still to a very large extent preparedness. And the deeper end of DRR examples, there are lots of good pilots. There is no lack of good pilots from Red Cross, from uh, UN, from other NGOs. The problem is, who's going to scale up good pilots? You know, a lot of the good work in the field, a lot of the things that we research, I evaluate, and evaluate as a good example. I very seldom see that in time they were scaled up, because I think most of the time it's left with the government to scale up good examples, because DRR funding is still three to four years maximum. Uh, I go to Nepal, I see fantastic work by the British government in development. People working there for 15 years, incrementally. I look at the DRR work, investment is made every time there is a major disaster in Nepal. And three years later, donors are no longer continuing to work. So, you know, how can you create the institutions really to scale up, to continue, etc. So it's not just funding, but it's a lot more than that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Interesting questions there about 
the use of language and the role that language plays in, in changing processes and attitudes or not changing them, as the case may be. And we'll probably want to come back to that in, in the discussion later on. I'm going to move on to Hugo now. Um, the question we asked Hugo to answer in seven minutes. <laughs> it's, only a, it's only a small question. Over the past 40 years, the world has witnessed numerous, numerous large-scale crises from sectarian conflicts, civil wars, territorial disputes, refugee crises, food security, etc. Um, have you seen a shift in the way which, in which we respond to crisis? And are we doing more for risk reduction in these fragile and conflict-affected countries? Jolly, jolly long question for a short answer, isn't it? Um, thank you very much, John, and thank you all for inviting um, me today. I'm, I'm very touched to be on um, a panel on this 40th anniversary because I think, like a lot of us, I love disasters as the sort of the key journal for us in humanitarian studies. And I know that it's always been in my career, if I could get an article in disasters, that meant more to me somehow than any other journal. And I managed it three times, once with John Mitchell in a joint article, and then twice on my own. And then I had a rejection as well from disasters, which was <laughs> wonderful. And I'd written a rather pretty dodgy paper, actually. And um, I, I chucked it in to disasters when I was at Oxford a few years ago, and hoping you know, they, would, they would take it. And quite rightly, the reviewer wrote back and said, you know, this paper totally lacks rigor which it did. <laughs> and, and the referee also said, not only that, but consistently throughout the paper, the author misunderstands and misrepresents the work of Hugo Slim. <laughs> so it's a brilliant. And it made me reflect, and I suppose we probably all misunderstand our work and don't really understand what we've written at all, and I think that's probably true. So I had three wins and one, one rejection. Um, I'm also very pleased to be here because, um, as the ICRC, so I got my little badge on because I have to sort of swing both ways a bit in this talk. Um, because, of course, the ICRC there's no doubt, has learned a lot from disasters. And it's a very thoughtful organization, the ICRC. And it's amazing when you get in there how many people are actually quite good with key literature, key papers. They really are thoughtful. Um, thought cowboys, maybe, in a sense. <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm, I can tell that. And I know from wider in the movement, of course, that you know the, the paper, the the papers and disasters have had a huge influence. So thank you from the ICRC as well um, for disasters. I want to try and talk briefly about sort of four areas. The first one I want to start with is conflict, of course, because that's what I'm asked to talk about. But that is also, in a sense, something that did, in a funny way, probably burst upon um, the disasters community um, in, the, in the 90s, really. I mean, you know, everyone here, John and everyone knows there were always conflicts. But there was a spike. Um, in conflicts during the early 90s, in many conflicts, a spike in conflicts, particularly non-international armed conflicts. So these were a real challenge. And there's no doubt that during that time, the um, disaster study community <coughs> worked very hard on conflict analysis. So one of the trends, one of the ways that I think, you know, disaster studies, this journal and others has, has influenced practice in the last few years, well, in the last 20, 30 years, is by people like Mark Duffield, David Keane, many others, thinking hard and bringing a war economy approach to um, our thinking and our understanding. And many more subtle sort of, actually that's not fair, more subtle than Duffield and Keane, that's not what I mean at all, but other subtle anthropologists and others have worked hard to really explore the lived experience of people enduring and, in, and um, engaging in those armed conflicts. So that's one big area, I think, in a sense that you know, the, this community, this thoughtful community, has helped shape, shape conflict, um, shape 
you know, the way we do policy and practice. And it, it shaped a lot of policy and a lot of practice to think in a war economies approach and a conflict analysis approach. It, there's no doubt it shifted major government donors and took a whole new line in um, disaster studies, if you like. Now, the second one, as a result of that, I think I'm calling it lawing up. You know, I think the whole community lawyered up at the same time. There was a big move, I suppose, from the sort of 90s onwards to, and I like to think in a way that maybe there was a sort of democratization of IHL, refugee law, human rights, the whole movement to become rights-based in our understanding of how people um, were entitled to various things, protection, assistance, safety, um, flight, exile, you know, asylum, all those things took form, and there's no doubt that the um, research community, you know, played a significant role in the whole wider community lawyering up, lawing up, becoming rights-based. And, um, of course, one of the, the key field um, implications for that on the ground was the massive emergence of protection. And that whole concept and that whole notion of rights-based protection, which in a sense had been ghettoed in ICRC and in UNHCR, who alone tended to talk about protection, we do protection, it sort of burst the walls of, of the feudal castle and went down to the people. And most NGOs, most civil society organizations um, began to say, no, protection is everything. And of course, if we look at specific events, I mean, Ian mentioned this morning how change is usually driven by specific disaster events. We would have to look at Bosnia and um, Rwanda as those events that said, you know, assistance is not the problem, protection is the problem. So then I think we had a lot of scholarship trying to write about, in a sense, political theories of rights and rights-based and um, laws and the protection of, of people in war. Um, and we had a lot of practice um, trying to say, well, how do you protect people in war? And that's been a, a subject of a lot of research over the last few years. Um, and if I was to say, you know, has that policy, has that research changed practice? Probably not much. We know from the wars in the Middle East recently that people are still killed, forcibly detained, displaced, whatever, um, in huge numbers. So we have a field of practice. We know what we want to do, but we're still often not able to do it, I think, is the answer about that. Um, another aspect of that whole conflict protection rights law thing, in a sense, was the politicizing of humanitarian action and the politicizing of people suffering in armed conflict. So that, you know, you know perhaps when I started Save the Children and, and John was, you know, one of my bosses and everything and Mike, we probably weren't that engaged with the UN Security Council. But now the whole issue has been sort of elevated up and is politicized squarely in the UN Security Council as you know, questions of protection of people in, in war, et cetera, et cetera. So that, those trends around conflict, uh, law, protection, politicization of the person affected by war and the conduct of war is one major issue, which has had a lot of scholarship alongside it, I think. Um, the second thing that's happened, and certainly if we look at ICRC's experience, and you know, you've talked a lot about it this morning in the disaster sessions, the urbanization of armed conflict, the urbanization of warfare, the urbanization of violence. As the world has urbanized, so has armed conflict. And if we look at ICRC in the last 10 years, we've had to massively skill up and scale up across urban warfare. And um, you know, I think something like 60, 70% of our footprint now is urban. 
you know, certainly 60-70% of our investment is urban. And in a way that, I often think it's a pity, in some ways, you know, it's the, the person that was really beginning to lead this around Bosnia and Grozny, so sort of Sarajevo and Grozny was Fred Cooney. And there was beginning with him to be a sort of emerging theory and whatever about urban humanitarian practice. It slightly dropped off, I think, with his death and with um, nobody else really picking it up. But it is being picked up now, and it must be picked up now. What does it mean to protect, assist people in urban contexts? The, the next set of issues I want to talk about comes with the scale. We've all commented, and John did when he opened, on the scale of the humanitarian sector. sector. We've sort of enormously grown into billions millions of people involved. Um, this led to a whole trend around standardization, code of conduct, sphere, and essentially it was a huge challenge of bureau bureaucratization. And there's been a massive bureaucratization of our um, profession. And that has led to a lot of literature um, and a lot of scholarship actually sort of navel-gazing and agonizing around organizational development, around professionalism, um, principles, etc. So that's another big patch. Um, I just want to make one last observation, which is, in a way, I think, while that's all very important, I think there is a problem that, in a funny way, the political theorists and the critical theorists have tended to grab the field. And I think in a lot of scholarship today that you get more brownie points for being good on Michel Foucault and not making lots of <laughs> clever Foucauldian points about the problem of power and unveiling the you know, oppression of humanitarian action than you do about writing and thinking and researching about what works for people. And so if, if I was to conclude, I would have to say, and I have, you know, it's lovely that John's sitting next to me, because I would have to say that actually the 70s, 80s were better because the majority of the research that was going on then was about people's experience, what they needed. Work by sort of John, Julius Holt, Helen Young over there around people being hungry, people being poor, people being displaced, what happens, what do we need to do? I think the pendulum needs to swing back. We, we need to take it away a bit from the political theorists, the critical theorists, and say, yeah, so what should we do? You know, and that's where the field disasters needs to get back to, which would be, um, I think, good for disasters and good for people. Thanks. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure there'll be quite a strong conversation on the balance between theory and practice as we go on. Um, but I'll move on now to Jennifer. Um, those of you with long memories will, will know that public health specialists and epidemiologists played quite an important role in, in disaster studies emerging as a field of research interest. Um, it's only back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it's sort of drifted outside the, the disaster studies sphere a bit, so we're hoping to address the balance, at least in part this afternoon. Um, the question we put to Jennifer was that, aside from conflicts, the world's also been plagued by large-scale pandemics, whether it's um, Ebola, Zika, SARS, or, or what have you. And have we improved in the way in which we prepare and respond to public health crises at different levels? <clears throat> well, thank you, John, and thank you for the opportunity of being here. I was delighted to be invited, and uh, I have been saying to some colleagues uh, since I arrived that this is a really wonderful collection of, of very, very informed and seasoned people. I'm finally being introduced or introducing myself to some of the classic names in the field, um, many of them who have published in this great journal, Disasters. I was a very, very early subscriber to Disasters. I'm now um, 
faced with the problem of, you know, sort of physical moves of one part of another and this, this vast stack, I mean, it has to be at least running eight foot stack of disasters in hard copy. Uh, I know it's online, et cetera. And uh, I, I just can't, I can't throw it away and say, well, it's going to be online. I still love the physical ones, the way it's changed over time. You know, so I, uh, it is, it is a very core uh, journal in the field. I, I have some comments about how the field of medicine and public health and the, the more um, medically oriented humanitarian uh, community um, might be better served by disasters or vice versa, but that's, a, that's another uh, point to make. <clears throat> uh, so thank you for this question. Um, I have a few uh, thoughts that I'd, I'd like to share with you about it. Um, so pandemics are like, and I will not use the word natural disasters, um, but I, I will say they're, they are like meteorological and, and uh, geological disasters. Um, and in that they have common elements and, and unique ones. And I would say that in the last 50 to 20 years about pandemics, we have learned a great deal about the unique elements of each of these major pandemics. And, you know, so um, uh, SARS, Ebola, Zika, I'll leave cholera out for a moment. Um, in other words, we understand the infectious agent. We know how the epidemic arises. We know how it spreads. We know how to contain it. We know how to treat it. We've learned these things, which each of these major um, pandemics. But I'm concerned that we have not really dealt with the common features and, and the more difficult and necessary challenge of building a robust and durable system um, and capacity or set of systems and capacities to prepare and respond to these fairly obvious common features of pandemics. So let me just list them. Here are the common features. They all arouse fear when they first surface in global consciousness. They cause grave disability, illness, and death. When they surface, their contagion roots seem unclear. The diagnostic methods and treatment parameters are not well defined. They all highlight pervasive and persistent deficiencies in existing health systems and health resources. They all raise concerns about disturbed and shifting ecosystems. They all exacerbate underlying social and political tensions in the community and the country. They are all met by nation states of the world with suspicion and xenophobia. They all ignite substantial human rights issues relating to restriction of movement and contact tracing. They always give rise to heroic and pioneering humanitarian efforts. They all expose the frailty and venality of our drug development and distribution systems. They all challenge global governance for health. So we've learned a lot about these individual agents, um, but I believe we are only just now seriously considering an integrated global strategy at all levels and at all sectors for prevention for surveillance and early detection and coordinated response to the common shared features of these diverse biological threats that have just been mentioned and of the many that lie in the future. So we've learned a lot, but we have not summed it up in a way that is mobilizable or greater than the sum of its parts. 
and it will be distressing to see some of the major lessons we've learned um, unravel at the next big one that occurs, and I'm expecting that. <clears throat> um, there are some positive things, but that's in a, a second set of questions I know you have for us. I, cholera is in a realm of itself um, because it's long known. It, it doesn't explode in consciousness like the Zika epidemic. It is uh, easily treated. It arises in poverty and collapse of water sources. And I think the reason we need to talk about it now um, is it is resurgent in the context of war, armed conflict, and post-conflict or chronic um, disarray of societies. And uh, it is, if you think about um, medicine and public health where we use surveillance and we talk about sentinel events that is signaling a change from baseline, cholera is that. And uh, we have it um, in very different places at uh, an absolutely astonishing burden of illness and death. So we haven't learned. Thank you. Well, let's, on that, on that <laughs> pessimistic note, um, I was supposed to ask a really upbeat question about opportunities. Um, but I, I will ask, I'm gonna go around the panel now and say, in the areas that you've talked about and the issues you've described, can you give examples of where positive change and progress was achieved? And maybe comment a bit on the factors that underlay that. Um, I, I get the sense, and, and I'm probably maligning all of you, that, that we've majored on the problems and the challenges a bit, which is, which well, is, which is, which is quite, which is you quite reasonable. Us, in, you indeed, asked us the indeed, but I, I thought somebody might at least try and sort of give it a, a you know, silver lining. But apparently not. But here's your chance. <laughs> okay. So Yasmin, do you want to go first? Uh, opportunities. Positive. Yeah, positive. Yeah, I think some of them. I mean, there is quite a lot. Of course, it's an achievement that we shifted the thinking from just responding and emergency teams to understand that the underlying factors, and it's not about knowing the hazard better. I mean, I think we all know it, and no harm in repeating. If whether we're able to do something about them, maybe that that is part of the challenge, but. Mm -hmm. Still, there's a lot of progress. I think one progress is in early warning, uh, public awareness, and um, I mean, saving life has improved. Let me put it that way. And it has also helped with the technology. I think major events um, which could have been prevented in terms of life losses resulted in investment in early warning. I mean, to tsunami, there was no to tsunami uh, comprehensive to tsunami warning in the in the um, Indian Ocean, and now there is a very sophisticated system. And in fact, even in Turkey, we get um, uh, to tsunami warning, which I never heard before. I mean, <laughs> how much to tsunami can happen in Turkey after an earthquake? But it's in the vocabulary now, and it's measured. So early warning has improved a lot in. Um, uh, disasters like, not for earthquakes, but a lot of the meteorological disasters. And saving life has improved a lot. Uh, this is helped by the technology. I think several people mentioned the technological progress. Yes, certainly. I think that is an opportunity for the future. Um, internet technology, uh, mobile phone technology, extensively used. Uh, 
And um, another area, in my opinion, is the cash, cash work. I recently evaluated something uh, for the Danish Refugee Council, uh, Syrian refugees <coughs> cash program. It's a protection program, but a lot of them used vouchers and cash. And now, of course, European Union is doing a huge cash program in Turkey with the Turkish Red Crescent. And uh, I think, I mean, we did not evaluate the entire program, just the DRCs, but it has a huge potential. A couple of years back, um, Paul Harvey and, and I evaluated post-tsunami reconstruction through a cash approach uh, in Sri Lanka, in my opinion. Again, that was very, very successful. It's efficient. It directly involves people. It's it gets the message of DRR into it more directly than through NGOs and through other institutions, etc. if you do it well. Of course, it looks very simple, but it's a very complicated uh, approach. It needs a lot of good understanding of the environment in which this is going to operate. And I'd seen in Sri Lanka three different organizations doing exactly the same thing because it was the World Bank framework and the only ones who got it absolutely right, well, of the two programs, one of them was the Swiss Development Corporation. And uh, others did not engage sufficiently in supporting the um, program on the field, and it wasn't as successful. So it's not a success by definition when you do cash, but if you do it well, I think it's a big, uh, big uh, opportunity. Of course, it means NGOs have to redefine their role. Mm. If they are not delivering directly, what is it that they will be doing? I mean, this is very much an issue with the refugees in Turkey. Um, a lot of the protection agencies would like to remain and do more. Unfortunately, sometimes it ends up doing a lot of assessment, you know, monitoring and assessment, which can almost suffocate the program's simplicity. And um, so I, I think these are some of the opportunities, and I can come back to others yeah, later. Thank you. Hugo? Yeah, I, mean, I, think I don't think I was pessimistic. Was I? Maybe I was. I, I, I think what, what I feel, there's no doubt, that, I mean, as Yasmin's saying, that I think if you're in an armed conflict today, I think you're probably, you know, unless you're at the sharp end of a direct violation that, you know, kills you, wounds you, um, rapes you or forcibly detains you, that there is a, a sense in which you are more likely to be assisted, more likely to stay alive in an armed conflict today than in many of the centuries before this. So I think there is enormous progress. And I think, you know, I think looking forward, this challenge around bureaucratization, the growing of the sector, the other thing that's extraordinary about the humanitarian agenda today is that it goes so much beyond the sort of four basic goods of health, water, food, shelter, if you like. I mean, you know, ICRC in itself is such a multi-disciplinary um, organization. We're, you know, looking at migration, we're looking at dead body management, we're looking at veterinary programs for pastoralists, we're looking at health, we're looking at, you know, supporting armed forces and armed groups on respect for IHR. We're just, it's a huge agenda. And then it breaks down into whole new notions of inclusions. We heard from Sarah this morning around disabled people, children, you know, gender, generation, um, et cetera, et cetera, different forms of um, identity that need to be understood and worked on. So it's a very elaborate 
um, agenda now, trying to include so many issues and so many people. It's almost a sort of whole society approach to um, humanitarian action. So it makes it very challenging. And then added to the the bureaucratization of the sector and the massive sort of transnational organizations involved, this is a challenge. So I think looking forward, you know, what should we be thinking? We have to find a way, I think, to um, understand what we're asking of ourselves, how, how complicated a lot of it is. We have to really focus on simplifying wherever we can and finding simple forms of partnership or operation, simple research which shows us what works and really try and... Um, you know, leverage those much more, I think, is the, is the only way to go. And that means thinking about localization, thinking about partnerships. All the stuff that um, Luca was talking about, um, I think, is very important. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, uh, I have a number of positive things to say. I think uh, uh, because out of this cauldron of failure to deal with common features, I think the Ebola epidemic uh, crystallized in, in many people's minds at all levels in various sectors uh, that uh, we've got to get better at dealing with pandemics. And, uh, and so arising from the uh, enormous work that was done out of Hong Kong and China in responding to the SARS epidemic, and a lot of that was just bootstrap uh, walking around epidemiology. Uh, contact tracing, just sheer hard work, learning from Canada's um, faltering experience about dealing with the epidemic at its one of its major urban areas, and then how it came through that. We we've come, we've accumulated a sense of how do you respond to each one better, and that has really been, I think, extremely heartening. And this is something that the medical, the scientific, the physician, the health worker, but also to some extent global governance, WHO improving over time and now getting, I think, a lot better at being in the command role it needs to be for some of these um, globalized disasters. There's been a lot of thinking about how to get better. So if I could just talk about um, five major domains that I think are getting better, and uh, a couple of them have been identified for disasters more generally, and I agree entirely with what's been said about disasters. DRR and, and, uh, and also about conflict and, and humanitarian response more generally. But from the standpoint of um, pandemics, I would say that this, uh, so one of them is we've really gotten better and we, we're, we've trialed it in Ebola uh, in a very kind of uh, disseminated, dispersed, not necessarily coordinated way, and now it's coming together. So technology-based early warning uh, and tracking systems. This is this you're going to see this full bore now in the next big epidemic, and um, it's been mentioned before. But cell data records, the CDR, um, is an explosively powerful new technology. You need cell phone um, operators to give permission to give you anonymi uh, anonymized data, uh, but you can now see population movement and tracking crossing borders. And there's some elegant papers that show how um, applying cell phone technologies to the West African situation would have been very, very helpful. It wasn't done, but now it, it occurred to people. So now they're basically, they're mapping. West Africa has a very, very high uh, density penetration of cell phones. And if you look at the patterns of cell phones and the way people move based on their cell phone IDs, you would not have been surprised that this one case that occurred in Guinea, this you know kid that died in December of um, 2013, and then 
MSF picking it up in something in March of 2014, and then by May of 2014, MSF being absolutely sounding this vast alert about the Ebola epidemic. Um, and even then, there was uncertainty on the part of the world, and WHO took longer to pick it up. Um, now that would be gone. You'd have, this, you'd have the cell phone records, and you could see people move and say, a case here, an index case here, it is going to a- a- arise here in about 10 days the way we can track how people follow. So there won't be any um, sort of unknown features about the spread of these illnesses um, because they are basically uh, move as people move. The other uh, part of this is um, the ways in which OpenStreetMap, you know, went to the Haiti earthquake and was very, very helpful in identifying what the, you know, cross of uh, walk and don't walk was. In other words, unnamed parts of Port-au-Prince. They could then say it's near the swimming pool, near this hotel. And then you could see it from satellite, and then you could direct people to go to do search and rescue. Well, that is now basically was put to very good use in Guinea, but also other parts of um, Liberia and Sierra Leone in mapping roads and putting local names to roads and, and, and roads that hadn't been mapped, saying where they went. So you could basically go up country, deploy supplies, figure out where people were moving, and find them if there was a situation that was heard about, but you weren't quite sure how to get there. So there's another big development in epidemiology and medicine that's being used in crowd disasters, uh, which could be applied to pandemics, which is you train local health workers, and it, it, it could be, does not have to be physicians, but people who can do syndromic surveillance, you know, headache, sore joints, train them to a tablet, they put it in, it goes up into a cloud, and then it can be uh, more sophisticated um, uh, arrays and displays for monitoring and early anticipation, anticipation, early warning of outbreaks. So technology is really going to be on our side in pandemics. And the one thing about pandemics is they, in, they sometimes can occur in the context of civil unrest and war, but the big ones we just talked about occurred in areas of relative peacetime and stability. So the interference with the information systems that might arise in war don't arise in pandemics, usually. So it's a very, very positive one. Um, then there's, there's a lot of work that's being done on strengthening health systems and, and human resources, national health systems, including a lot of kind of anguish and hand-wringing on the parts of the major donors who had spent hundreds of millions of dollars in building the health systems, not in Guinea so much, but in Liberia and Sierra Leone, post-wars, et cetera. And much of it you know, didn't stand up to the test case. And so now there's a scrutiny about what are we spending money on? Why are we did it? We do a bad job. The local governments, national governments, are really coming back up and saying we have to do better. So that is a very, very positive dialogue where both sides are disconcerted by the failures of response and they're in, they're hell bent on improving it. And an aspect of that is improving lab competencies and diagnostic services at the at the county as well as national levels. So you don't have to wait for five days and send it something by airplane to France to get it figured out. Um, and I mentioned that there's an enormous amount of work going on in building global uh, capacity for response and preparedness. WHO um, you know, experimented with a UN coordinator in the region for the Ebola uh, epidemic. And uh, although that was controversial, it actually galvanized WHO to reactivate it and, and empower its emergency uh, response unit, which is now in very good form. The reform of the pharmaceutical uh, pipelines, I won't uh, go into detail, but that has really taken off. And you have the private sector, government, um, major NGOs, um, and a wide range of humanitarian responders at the table 
talking about how you can develop new vaccines, deal with neglected um, medicines, have cheaper medicines available, et cetera. I won't go into it, but there's, this is really, really promising. Um, and then I, I would say that the, um, the part of that that is just fascinating is uh, different organizations where MSF was very, very important in this, and they're in the leading um, NGO or humanitarian institution role of interacting around the development of drugs and vaccines. Um, their ethical perspective on how you do rapid trials, field testing, without doing randomized control trials, but just doing trials of candidate drugs in populations that will be drugs that can be used in the field situation where it's hot, you don't have a cold chain, you don't have people who are really sophisticated who can read the drug inserts, you know, in the bottle of pills. Um, they, they made an extraordinary contribution to the changing of minds of Big Pharma. And, and that, now there is dialogue going on so that Big Pharma gets it. You know, we are not going to be only under rigid FDA, Food and Drug Administration laws in terms of randomized controlled trials and have it go through three years of testing before you put it in the field. In these emergencies, there are now protocols being developed for rapid deployment that have been scrutinized by, you know, very, very senior monitoring bodies. And uh, so I, so this is where I may sound overly optimistic, but I think a next big pandemic, building on all of the learned experience in the past, we're likely to see a marked improvement in early warning and in response and in community engagement. I can now, when you've had time to digest all those thoughts, throw it open to the floor. And um, in a moment, I'll throw it open to the online audience as well. We'll follow the same procedure as we did earlier, which was I'll take questions in groups of four and then ask the panelists how they want to respond to them. I'm very happy to hear from people who haven't asked questions all already. Yes. Can you give names and organizations, please? And could everybody keep their questions brief and make them questions rather than statements? Thank you. Can you hear me or do I need to speak up if it's not? Oh, there we go. Uh, it's uh, Laura-Louise Fairley from the START Network. Um, it's a question for Jennifer. You have to forgive me if this was covered in the 20 seconds where I was dying in the corridor. Um, <laughs> you've spoken about the issues surrounding uh, epidemics and also the areas of progress. I wonder if you feel there's a, there's a gap in terms of... At Start Network, we respond to um, outbreaks like this where funding is not coming in for rapid response. So we were working in... Yemen before a lot of the international attention was switched from the conflict side towards the cholera outbreak and recently in South Sudan as well with Save the Children and there seems to be a period where we're aware that there is an outbreak but we're not quite labelling it as an epidemic uh, in the sector and international response is very slow and that to me in an outbreak seems to be the, the key point where you, you bring in these areas of progress. And I wonder what your views are on that, that time period and how we can try and improve as a sector and um, with governments to focus more rapidly on outbreak, uh, dealing with outbreak. Okay, Pop that one with you for a moment and take the rest. Yeah. There's a gentleman over there. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, my name is Hans-Joachim Heinze. I'm one of the editors of the online journal International Humanitarian Action. It's financed by the European Union and it's open access journal. I would like to congratulate the disaster 
disasters maker for the wonder, wonderful journal. We use it very much in our education, in our NOHA network. And we are now talking about the future challenges. And my question deals with the codification process within the United Nations. And I know the reputation of the law is not that good. However, I wonder, we have a codification process in the United Nations dealing with the protection of persons in the event of disasters. And the uh, people who, deals, who deal with disasters do not take care of it. I mean, I can't understand. I miss the legal dimension of uh, humanitarian action and disasters in the journal. And my recommendation would be, please deal a little bit as legal issues. Thank you. Thank you. Are there other hands up, Bruno? Yeah. Uh, hello. Yes. Uh, I, my name is Bruno Hagebart. I'm with the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. I have a question for Hugo. Uh, there's been quite a few attempts to bring together the DR community and conflict community to learn from each other's work. and and often with quite unclear results, and we still seem to work very much into our own silos. So I would like to hear from Hugo when, from his perspective as at the ICRC site, what can we learn from each other? And how, what are the obstacles, but also the opportunities to work more closely together? Because I think this is still lacking, especially as we work in, uh, in more complex environments uh, increasingly, so. Thank you, and Fausto, you had your hand up as well. Um, Fausto Marincioni, um, Polytechnic University of Marche, Italy. Uh, this is an ongoing uh, discussion and possibly is directed to Professor Slim. Uh, where do you think we are in terms of disaster ethics? Again, it's going back into the discussion of responsibility, taking responsibility. Um, are we as scientists doing enough to foster these uh, discords on uh, disaster responsibility. Thank you. Okay, thanks. That's, that's four really interesting questions. Shall I, shall I start with the last one and throw it to all, four, all three panelists, actually, about disaster ethics and responsibilities? Anyone like to, to pick that one up? It was directed principally at yeah, you, but I, I don't, I don't think you. it's exclusive to that. No, thank you. And it's important that I actually think it ties very clearly to Hans Joachim's um, point, too, because okay. it's this question, in a sense, not just of responsibility, but people's rights. And I think it was Ben or someone over there earlier said, you know, we're going to look in the future at huge um, claims against county governments and for, for neglect and negligence. I mean, one of the great insights coming out of famine work, of course, from Amartya Sen and others, is that you know, unless you have political contract around hunger, then you won't stop famine. So you have to have the kind of political and legal contracts you're talking around between society and government. I mean, it's what Yasmin talking about, government. And, and that is very, very important, so that the state feels, understands, and knows it is going to be held accountable for a responsibility to stop and prevent hunger and famine. And I mean, I do think we have to. And, and you know, when I talked earlier about the rights basing of civilians in conflict, particularly over the last 20, 30 years in scholarship and practice. It's the same thing. I think it's people trying to make quite clear that there should be a political and legal contract between people suffering in war and um, states and, and others with responsibility. And I think, 
I think it has to happen in, in disaster ethics. I mean, I, Bruno probably knows better than I do, but you know, the work on disaster law, the emerging work around disaster law from the Federation of the Red Cross and others, I think will take us in that direction. And I think it should, because I think there should be a political and legal contract between citizens who are vulnerable to disaster and states and other governments who have taken on responsibility to be governing to, to protect them. Um, and I think it will become more and more of an issue alongside climate change, more common disasters, urbanization, etc. So I think it's not just a, I mean, it is a fundamental matter of ethics, but it's, it's going to become a core matter of um, policy and um, political contest. really, I, I agree about the contract side. Um, as you say, it has to be a contract between the government and the public. Uh, it changes from country to country. I mean, in some countries, the, gover the, the public and some institutions, civil society, organizations, etc., can challenge the government and put political pressure on the gover government for policy change. Uh, press can put a policy change pressure on the government, but in, in a lot of the countries, this will be difficult, if not dangerous. So it really depends on where you are. And the second issue is, often the, the most vulnerable people are not capable of voicing themselves. And uh, someone has to help them to voice themselves. And help someone, I mean, they have to be helped to organize themselves to be voiced. Um, you know, if you are already able to voice yourself through something, then I think you are into some uh, putting public pressure, but the, often the, the kind of people that we would like to be helped, we feel are ignored and left out, are not necessarily the ones who are organized enough um, to do so. There, there were some attempts like accountability frameworks. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are able to speak to that. And where it went and how far it was successful in public accountability, it was more the accountability of the donors uh, to the recipients, etc. But I'm not sure if it went far enough to be able to create this contract. Uh, maybe the donors were more concerned about their own accountability because they can be criticized back in their parliaments and by their own public, who's actually the taxpayer for this, for what has been achieved. But at the national level, uh, I think there are some successful examples like Colombia, for example, where the, the municipal governments, in a way, have, a have this kind of a contract and they are accountable to the public for their services to reduce disaster risk. And it took many, many years, and it became the mayor's actually election uh, agenda. Uh, and they could be held accountable. But in other, I mean, there, there can be successful countries in that respect, but not the majority. But certainly, that's a way to go. And who can help this? I mean, who actually sets policy? Who actually? Um, raise awareness for policy change. Um, the press has a role, if they can be independent, and uh, civil society organizations can be. Academics, to a certain extent, 
uh, through their research, etc., if, if they can voice it and put pressure on the government. I mean, I can certainly say in Turkey, the ones who have the power will be the seismologists and <laughs> engineers, <laughs> whatever. Um, so there might be, in different situations, different groups. Maybe it comes from the hazard people, maybe it comes from the journalists, maybe from the civil society groups, depending on the context in the country, to really put this pressure. Thank you. It's a rich question. Uh, and I agree with the contract um, point um, and uh, everything that has already been said uh, in response. I, uh, I would say I push it a bit in the sense that there, and I'm not sure you, either you would disagree with me, but that a legal contract, something that is written in terms of the UN would be, is very important. Um, some deeply implied um, emanation from the rights and legal framework of nation states that would say, that would make it sort of <clears throat> impossible for a state to evade responsibility if it's charged with malfeasance in the response to a disaster. Uh, it, it gets a little bit more frail at the community level, but count on it. There's going to be an enormous <coughs> amount of litigation around insurance law and a land use law in Houston after this Hurricane Harvey, because Houston basically put cement over all of the floodplains. It dammed up some of the rivulets. It essentially destroyed its capacity, and it's a vast city, to handle heavy rain. And this is the outcome. Uh, so there's going to be litigation here. Uh, and, uh, but there's, a, there's also a sort of an edgy um, implicit contract, even with totalitarian states or with states that, are, um, that don't advance a human rights or legal agenda in relationship to their populations. It, it doesn't happen that often, but, but if we search, we'd find more examples than the ones I was just thinking of right now. So for instance, a massive cyclone in the Bay of Bengal in 1970 was poorly responded to by the West Pakistan government. East Pakistan was about to have an election for uh, its leadership and also for the state, the United uh, State of Pakistan. They postponed it because of the um, disarray from the cyclone. They had an election in December of 1970. They brought in somebody who was deeply opposed to the West Pakistan federal government. Um, West Pakistan responded angrily, and that led almost immediately to the outbreak of the Civil War in 1971. And analysts take it back to that fury in, in East Pakistan to the failure of the national government to respond to that cyclone, which left somewhere between 250 and 500,000 people dead. Soviet Union had two syncopated disasters. So Chernobyl, the nuclear disaster, and then in 1988, shortly thereafter, the Soviet-Armenia earthquake. And those two that basically showed tremendous failures on the part of the Soviet Union to deal with technology on the first part and then with misery and suffering on the second part um, essentially led to a, f a complete disengagement from the Soviet project and was part of what led to Glasnost and, and the opening under Gorbachev. Uh, Hurricane. People say the response of the federal government to Hurricane Katrina under the George W. Bush administration contributed to his failure um, to basically win the next midterm elections, et cetera. You can see that Trump is trying not to repeat that. He's all over the southern part of the United States. So there's, um, 
people are watching. And, and uh, I would say that this idea of building in a disaster ethics that includes a contract and, and a recognition of a contract or an explicit statement of, guess what, guys, there is a contract, is a really important topic. And I, I think, it's, I think it, it's, it's, it's sort of about to be actualized. But perhaps it would be a wonderful article for the Disasters Journal, really, or several. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then there's another way in which I think we should study how municipalities or governments respond to disasters, and there's a disaster ethics here. So, Hugo, you've talked brilliantly in many settings and written about humanitarian ethics. And, uh, but in the case studies I do on disasters and teach, on, there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's always a conflict between the efficiency of the response and recognizing where people's suffering um, and grieve, grieving areas are. And uh, in my view, people care as much about the dead in a disaster as they do about the living. And the search for the missing, this is so palpable in earthquakes, standing in front of the rock faces, wanting to, to see where they are, encouraging search and rescue, which we all know is you know, relatively futile after the first, what, 36, 40 hours. Um, relatively, because there's always somebody you find eight days out, you know. Um, and then all these people that want to come in to do recovery, which is, you know, jargon in U.S. for basically moving the rubble, which the rubble's a very big problem in many of these disasters, not just earthquakes. But that means, of course, you irrevocably um, destroy the chance of trying to find somebody alive. And that tension is palpable, and it hasn't really been written about. And uh, so that, to me, is the next layer of disaster ethics. Uh, so it's a really rich topic. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we've still got two of the four questions no, to, to deal with. No, that's, that, that's good. Um, Bruno's question about bringing DRR and conflict communities is the word I think you used together. I'm not sure they are communities or mm. what kind of communities they are, but um, any reflections from the panel on that? Whether they even need bringing together. Well, I, th I think you, go, you guys can leave. I mean, it's certainly an, um, a family problem for the Red Cross Red Crescent <laughs> movement. So we may not sort of voice it here, but I think, I think there isn't enough of it. I think that's true. I mean, there's no doubt that the, you know, you talked about Mary Anderson and, and um, the VCA vulnerability capacity analysis approach. That certainly has influenced uh, conflict work. And certainly a lot of people, you know, working today will also focus on that, but also focus on resilience as well. So I think there is overlap, but I think the two communities probably don't um, meet together and think together as much as they could. And as you say, Bruno, there are a lot, because you know, we're talking about protracted conflict now, um, and the ICRC, you know, in our top 10, the average time we've been in a place is 36 years now. So you know, we're in places where you have earthquakes, floods, you know, whatever. And so we do have to work that out. But I think we can also have our own operational approach informed by probably better understanding. And the other, I mean, I've just agreed to go to a meeting on the humanitarian environmental nexus, another nexus. <laughs> so, so I think this is all going to come together and it's going to be key for, for us as well. We have, we have to do it better somehow. Mm. The only thing I can add to it is how to work with the local partners. I think there, there is a lot of learning to do. In some areas, probably IFRC is more advanced because they have to work with the local uh, partners. And ICRC could duck it for a very long time, but 
uh, not anymore. They, because of the, the situation in those countries, conflict countries, I think you cannot not work through the, the, the sort of local system. And maybe there are different experiences. And uh, I think probably ICRC has a lot more leverage because you don't have to by mandate, whereas federation has to work through the national societies, good or bad, um, because of their mandate. They cannot not work through them and choose another partner. Um, I think these ways of operating at the local level could be a learning process. And also, I think the protection of the civilians, I think Federation can learn a lot from um, ICRC, because that's becoming an issue in disasters, too, increasingly. And certainly, Federation doesn't have the experience ICRC has. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'll move on to the last question, which is the one we were going to, which was directed to you anyway, about um, mm. international response speeds. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. Um, and you were saying that, that one of the issues that the START network is, is concerned about is when a case or maybe two cases arise, and the question is when do you stand, sound the alarm? Uh, is, that, is that what your question was? It's been a while since you asked it. Right. It's more about the Yeah, well, thank you. Um, it's technically a difficult question. I mean, it, with measles in any um, crowd uh, that is refugees or dense settlement, one case of measles constitutes an epidemic because it is so contagious, particularly if it is a malnourished community <clears throat> or vulnerable from you know, illness or disease in other ways. And that's been well known in the disaster and humanitarian community. One case of Ebola, uh, where it is, you know, low simmer endemic in various parts of West and Central and Great Lakes region, uh, is not necessarily that. And so there were a few people that knew about this December 2013 case, and it was, but then it wasn't watched. And this is where these indirect technologies can start helping. That is, how, where's the next case? Uh, is it across the border? Which is, what, in fact, that was when it was first recognized. It was, and so that, so the, these lethal viruses, basically, that are spread by vectors but then can be spread human to human, I mean, you have to look at the characteristics of what that one case is. Um, how deadly, how is it spread, how do humans help it spread? Are the vectors like mosquitoes or fruit bats or whatever widely disseminated? And so when you are in that context, it's a judgment call to start raising the alarm. So. I would say that there is more education to be done in communities at very local levels and at nation state levels about the parameters or the definitions of what kind of disease outbreak requires a really strong vigilance in terms of, of following its course. I believe that WHO is going to be very invested in helping to define those categories and helping to train local health systems and health workers in it. I mean, that's part of what they're good at. Um, so it's, it's, it's tricky. It's both a scientific question and an empirical question around what is the context in which this outbreak is occurring, or this case is occurring. But reducing the cycle time is not necessarily the right thing to do, because then you'll be overcalling epidemics. Not every case or two is going to lead to an epidemic. So that's where some experience in further investigations and watching 
in an early warning mode is important. Thank you. I'm going to take a, an online question now. There is only one online question. I, 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 there's supposed to be more than 100 people out there. It shouldn't be too difficult for them to click. No, you've, and you've only got about 10 minutes left in which to do so. Um, this is from Paul Anticoni of World Jewish Relief, who writes, risk aversion, donor restrictions, and obsession with professional standards risks taking people and passion out of our decision-making. Real-time media seems to seek to find fault or controversy with our agility or overly influenced decisions we make for fear of our reputation being damaged. Is this an irreversible trend, and are we inevitably to be held to ransom as to the nature of our future action? Any, any response to that? That's your, that's any? your answer. <laughs> Do you want to get? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't know. Do you want to? <laughs> Hello, Paul. Thanks for that. Um, I think it's difficult. I mean, I think, you know, as Weber pointed out years ago, in, in all organizations and professions, there's always a tension between charisma and bureaucracy and sort of passion and, you know, caution and all these things. I think we do have to be brave. I mean, I think certainly in, in the ICRC at the moment, we realize we we must continue to be brave. We must continue to focus on the front line. And um, I think, I hope others will, will try and do that too. It comes with a cost. As you know, we've had two people murdered um, this week. So it's very, it's very difficult, but I think we, we wouldn't be fulfilling our mission. We wouldn't be being humanitarian if we were being too risk averse. So I think um, we have to take risks. Um, and I think we have to make it clear to people that we are taking them. We're taking them consciously and responsibly so that we can't be overly criticized. And I think in terms of passion, I mean, I, I think you can't, you can't really do well in this profession and in this field unless you are driven by compassion, that's for sure. But um, feelings shouldn't drive everything. I mean, it was interesting, I think, Ian and, and, and even Francis this morning said, you know, there was a feeling that good intentions would be enough. Um, back in the days when we were, in a sense, overly amateur rather than overly professional. So we, we have to, you know, follow David Hume and make sure that we are, our passions are guided um, by our thoughts and by wise judgment as well. But you're right, we, we, we shouldn't be um, cowed, we shouldn't be made afraid to do what we need to do and what people um, who are suffering need as assistance or protection. But it's difficult, and it's part of a, a backlash. And it's also part of a backlash probably because we've got so big, it's such a big profession, it takes up you know, a lot of space, um, therefore we're a target. But we have to continue to be courageous, I think. Yes, um, probably, I mean, I can only add, uh, I agree with what you have said, and maybe I should add, um, who is in the best place? Uh, to do that, uh, I think at some point there was also this do no harm framework. Sometimes when we're too enthusiastic and see too many things and too much suffering, etc., I think there's a risk to be carried over. And I think everything we do have long-term consequences, especially as outsiders, it's sometimes easier for us. And uh, as we work more and more through the local, you know, supporting local people and doing less and less of the work, I think we have to be very careful not to <coughs> implicate people. I remember from the very first trips I did with uh, Francis de Souza, Ian, 
etc., someone who helped them in eastern Turkey, visiting the earthquake places, were framed by the uh, military. I think one of them, when they came back, wrote an article probably published by the Disasters Journal. And they freely spoke about what this person who helped them said, why people were not helping in eastern Turkey because of this Kurdish population, etc. And the person who helped was then in trouble. I mean, sometimes what you think is okay uh, to sort of defend uh, passionately um, uh, go for, uh, one has to be careful what it means in the context. And if you are <laughs> putting those <laughs> who are helping you and working with you, uh, they, their futures will be jeopardized. Was the question something about the media and what the media did? It, was in, it was in part about the media. It was really about risk aversion amongst organizations in, in terms of the outcomes of what they do and the, the, the public consequences of failure as well. Well, then I, I don't yeah. have anything to add to what you both said. We've got five minutes to go. Um, I would like to offer each of the panelists the chance to make a final thought. A big thought, a small thought, um, what, whatever, whatever you think. You passed on the last one. Would you want to start this this ball rolling? Well, I think I think this is a good time to have a 40th anniversary <clears throat> because not only is it driven by the the calendar, but it is also a time when a lot of us are in a state of reflection and recognizing that. Um, for reasons I won't elaborate, I think this, the day has talked about them. We are in a, um, a part of a of a curve that is uh, not going to just be uh, moving asymptotically. There's something happening that is accelerating: um, risk, threats, climate change, collapse in governance, um, uh, extraordinary powerful forces of forced migration. Uh, and this is this century, which is still young. It's it's uh, all of us are going to have jobs for as long as we live, and another four generations in responding to crises of different kinds. And it's going to, in my view, it's going to get worse. Um, this is this is pessimistic about the way the world is going, but it, I'm optimistic about the enormous. Um, possibilities of, uh, of uh, the next several generations, and I'm not leaving my generation out. There's still work we're going to be doing, too. And so I, and I think this, the body of knowledge that, that the organizers have brought here today, in terms of the people, um, but then also much of the discussion, it speaks to that, that this is a, this is a, this is a, a hopeful point in terms of prevention and response. It's a hopeful point for early warning. It's a hopeful point for all of us to be um, moving outside side our disciplinary professions, although we need to be steeped in a discipline, to collaborate and come together and, uh, and in various ways. I think it's potentially a hopeful point for massively important international institutions like the ICRC or uh, the UN. I think this is a very, very, it feels vigorous. I'm not saying we're ready for how bad it already is or how bad it's going to get. But um, I sure wouldn't want to be with any other group of people 
facing the rest of this century than the people around this room and on online. Yes, um, I think probably from a research perspective, I'd like to see more longitudinal studies. I think we talked about it uh, many times in the past, and there are still very few, because some things which may look very unsuccessful over time may become successful. Again, to reflect from our example, we did a, a survey. We worked in Turkey for four years, looking at post-disaster reconstruction some 10, 12 years later. And it was a whole different story. You know, things which were very unsuccessful at the beginning. Some things worked well and other things didn't. And I think we are getting a snapshot, a snapshot of what is, uh, maybe it's in health it's different because you do this kind of monitoring well, I, I and building on differently, well. but I I totally agree. certainly in other areas, I think the snapshot shot approach only gives a snapshot. And I don't think there are those out there doing research, making sort of linking the, those threads, trying to look at it in a longitudinal way. And I think there has to be more attempt made to look at the same situation over certain periods of time or an issue and see where it's going. But it um, has been difficult to get funding, funding for that long-term process. Yes, it is. It's difficult to get funding for research in general. So I think what little is available, I think maybe institutions can make the effort a little bit to put into it. Of course, yes. And, um, and the other issue is um, still, I think the humanitarian community, even DRR community, is, is a little bit inward looking. And I think there can be a lot more uh, engagement with, say, the development community or other types of communities. Because a lot of the things that we all know are not addressed are not going to be addressed by us. They're going to be addressed by development. <laughs> and there are some good examples. I was in Bangladesh a couple of years ago and uh, I was really positively um, uh, surprised to see that um, there was a big food security program which is funded by others and disaster risk reduction was a part of the food security problem because for Bangladesh it's ultimately about food security. And the interesting thing, I don't know if it's still the same, the ministry in charge was in charge of both disaster reduction in its name, it had Food Security and Disaster Risk Reduction Ministry. I don't know if it still remains the same because institutions change. And I think at least with those kind of disasters where we know it, it's like, it's not like an odd earthquake, that it's there, big or small, and it affects the same communities, the same type of people, and it's ultimately about food security. I think that is possible to uh, make the effort. Uh, but I don't think development community is going to reach out, reach out to us. Yeah. They have a huge agenda and if anything, I think we have to mm -hmm. <laughs> find some ways of uh, sort of having good examples. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Just two points for me. I just want to um, repeat what I said earlier that I think the, the most important thing you know, the disaster study community can do going forwards now um, after this great birthday is to focus hard on empirical research about 
people's lives, what they experience, what they need, and to do that with them in, in good style empirical um, research um, on the ground. As we heard strong messages, you know, from uh, Luca and JC and everyone else saying, you know, if you're going to work on this stuff, work on it in the armed conflict, in the disaster, whatever. So really understand it. And then this, this big question in the way that Helen Young raised earlier is that, you know, we're doing the same things now. We're really working still <coughs> on the knowledge base, the theory, the uh, practices of the 80s, 70s and 80s in what we do in food, security, whatever. Now, is that because it's the best thing to do or is it some kind of habit we've got into. So I think that's the other reason to really dig down and do more empirical work about what really works. Are we working from habit or and are there new things to do? So I think empirical research is, is really important. And then the other thing we need to do less of, I think, um, because it distracts us all the time, is to engage in an endless fascination with our own system. You know, the kind of extraordinary, you know, astronomy of, you know, UN coordination, NGO this, that sort of thing. We've got actually to detox a bit from a fascination with ourselves and get back to really working with people about what's happening in their lives and what could, what could work to uh, protect and assist them. Thank you. So the conclusion really is that when we have the 50th anniversary conference, we should have a completely different set of people in the room. Um, inc including communities. Thank you to the panellists. Thank you to those of you who asked questions and listened. Um, it's been a very stimulating conversation. Fortunately, we've run out of time, so I don't have to sum it up, which was on my, my to-do list, because it would be rather difficult to capture without a lot of thought. But thank you to the panellists, and thank you to all of you. Thank Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>